Welcome to the podcast of Seven Rivers Presbyterian Church in Lakanto, Florida. Our passion is to be a church that enjoys God, experiences His grace, and reflects His love to our community and beyond. To join our local body in financial support of this ministry, visit our website at sevenrivers.org. Uh, I'm just going to read from Luke chapter 15. I'm going to read the first two um, verses of Luke 15. Um, And uh, I'm just going to have you remain seated because it's a very brief reading from um, God's Word. I'm going to refer more to uh, other places in God's Word as we um, progress in the service. Luke chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus. Stop and think about that. The tax collectors, they're the most hated um, people in the culture because Israel is occupied by Rome and the tax collectors are Jews, but they work for Rome. They collect money for Rome. And they not only collect money for the, um, uh, the enemy, They also collect more than they should, and they keep plenty for themselves, right? So they get rich in this system of occupation. They are collaborators with the enemy. They are the most despised of all the Jews. So it says, those guys are drawing near to hear Jesus. And sinners, sinners is a euphemism for people in the sex um, trade, for prostitutes. So tax collectors and sinners are drawing near to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes, now who are they? They're the religious people. They grumbled saying, this man receives sinners and he eats with them. Amen. This then is the reading of the very word of God. Father, the biggest country is in, our, in our country isn't uh, Republicans or Democrats. The biggest problem in our country, uh, perhaps, is the apathy of those who claim your name. So, Father, would you stir us by your love for us? Would you knock us over again by the wonder of who you are? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So here's the question, what drew these people to Jesus, right? What what drew these people to Jesus? Because some people were repulsed by Jesus. The religious were repulsed by Jesus. We just read that, right? But the most unlikely people were drawn to him. What's up with that? What makes people far from God wanna be near him? What made Jesus irresistible? Now, if you're a parent, you ought to really lock in because it's the big challenge of your life, right? Suppose you claim faith in Jesus, but the real question is, how am I going to pass this on to my kids? How my kids watch me and grow up in, in, in my house for at least 18 years? How are they going to, um, uh, how, how am I going to keep them close? And when they walk away, they go to college, wherever they go, they don't go in the opposite direction from Jesus. How's that going to happen? I love the story, the visitor to Australia, and he noticed something that, that these vast ranches there, and the ranches are covered with cattle, 
And uh, the ranches can run for miles and miles and miles, 50 or 100 miles, one ranch. And there were no fences. How could they have no fences? What would keep the cattle? So the visitor asked, how do you have no fences? I mean, how do you not just lose all the cattle? All the cattle wander away. The ranchers say, we decide where we want the cattle to congregate, and that's where we dig a well. And you see, the, um, the cattle won't um, get very far from the source of water because they know that where there's water, there's life. Where there's no water, there's no life. So there's the role of parents in a nutshell, isn't it? Have your kids taste the water of life, the water, the only water that can satisfy them in such a way that why would they? It's like Peter, right? When it gets hard to be a follower of Jesus, Jesus says, I suppose you'll leave now too. And he says, where would we go, right? You have the words of eternal life. You have the water of life. We're not going far from the well, but how do we, how do, we do that? So we have, um, we have a great preschool here. We have a great preschool director, Heather Manuel and her team. And they're doing something the next uh, number of weeks, uh, encouraging parents to read bedtime stories, to read at bedtime with their children, bedtime story blitz. And uh, so they sent out a flyer about it the other day. And on the flyer had this little um, quote. Now, I don't know who this is who said this, but it said, when I say to a parent, read to a child, I don't want it to sound like medicine. I want it to sound like chocolate, right? Um, when I say to my child, follow Jesus, give your life to Jesus, I don't want it to sound like medicine. I want it to sound like chocolate, right? Um, hey, medicine's, you know, medicine's awesome. I mean, medicine's great. You need medicine, right? If you're sick, medicine's uh, a great gift. But it's not chocolate. <laughs> it's not chocolate. We don't dream about medicine. We dream about chocolate, right? Um, so... Why were people drawn to Jesus? And then let's get more personal. Why were you drawn to him? What did you first love about Jesus? What, made you, what makes you get up on Sunday mornings or Saturday night and come um, to church? What makes you give your money freely uh, and generously, lavishly? What makes you do that? What makes you love Jesus? What made you fall in love with him? What makes him irresistible to you? A lot of people say, uh, I'm not a Christian, you know. Um, I reject uh, Jesus. And I'm not sure they reject Jesus. I'm not sure they've ever met him. What they've met is the caricature of Jesus, a caricature. Or, or maybe what they reject is, is the image of Jesus they've gained from Jesus' followers. So in this service, I might say, let's go to Jesus, the source, and remember what drew us to him. And, uh, and have our hearts warmed again. You ready? Ready to go? Two points in this sermon. Stand up. Say hallelujah. Um, two points. Um, the heart of Jesus, um, his beauty. I want us to reflect on his beauty. The psalmist says in Psalm 27, verse 4, my favorite psalm, one thing I've asked of the Lord, David says, one thing that I will seek after. In other words, he's saying, Here's the priority of my life. If I don't have this, then I don't have anything. This is, this is my passion, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. I gotta have his beauty. 
The appetite for beauty, you see, is in every soul. It's inscribed in us. We long for it. We crave beauty. We are arrested by it. You know, you can um, take a, um, a room in your house. You can uh, create a, 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 in the basement of your house or an apartment, and you can fix it all up, and you can decorate it, and you can advertise it on Airbnb, and people all over the country, even all over the world, will pay you money to come and stay in, uh, in that place. But if they can look out a window um, uh, at your house and it overlooks a creek or it overlooks a mountain vista or you can see out that window uh, the sunlight shimmering across a lake, guess what? You can make a lot of money um, with that property because you can charge a far higher price because people don't just want a place to lay their head at night. They want what? beauty, beauty. They'll pay top dollar for beauty. Sunsets, waterfalls, redwood forests, snow-capped mountains, birds, butterflies, blueberries, babies, beauty, right? Beauty warms us, draws us. We want it. We crave it. You know, when God said the world, made the world, and, and we're told about it in the book of Genesis, it says that he looked at what he made and he declared it is what? The word good, it is good, that's what we're used to. That word in Hebrew can be equally translated, it is what? God looked at it and he said it is beautiful. It's beautiful. Dostoevsky said beauty will save the world. And he was right. For in the whole panoply of beauty, nothing is more startlingly beautiful than Jesus. Jesus is God in the flesh. Beautiful. Everything lovely in God is in Jesus And everything possible to be lovely in any man is in Jesus, right? Perhaps um, you think of Jesus in other ways. Perhaps not naturally how you think of Jesus. Some men struggle with the idea of the beauty of Jesus. I'm No, thank you. I'm not that kind of guy. Um, Listen, we're not talking about um, physical beauty. We're obviously not talking about anything that has sexual overtones. Um, the, the Old Testament, if anything, tells us in Isaiah 53 that he had no form or majesty that we would be drawn to look at him. And perhaps physically he was not um, attractive by whatever the standards would have been in that day. That's not what we're talking about. I think it'll be clear what we are talking about. It's when we see the heart of a person, when we see some action, we say, wow, that was what they did, who they are. It's beautiful, right? You with me? There is no beauty like the beauty of Jesus. What draws us to him? He has the most holy, gentle, tender, gracious, and loving heart. Why do you think the tax collectors and the um, prostitutes were drawn to him? He has the most holy, gentle, tender, gracious, and loving heart. When people encounter Jesus, they are startled by the beauty of his welcoming heart. I can only tell you I've seen this uh, through the years. So I teach the pastor's class here. I've, I've, I've taught the pastor's class for almost 38 years. And perhaps for the last 35, I've started the pastor's class with reading Luke chapter 15. And we read about this very account. 
And um, the prostitutes and tax collectors coming to Jesus, the religious leaders, um, harsh about that. And Jesus tells a story. He tells a story of a wayward son who insults his father, takes the father's wealth, goes to a far country, makes absolute ruin out of his life, and then staggers home a uh, a rejected, um, despondent um, failure, only to be greeted by a father who runs out humiliating himself, hiking his garment up, exposing his legs, something no self-respecting Jewish man would ever do, runs down the road and uh, grabs his uh, a failure of a son in his arms, embraces him, welcomes him home, and kisses him. Now, I told the class this um, Wednesday night when I was teaching that. I said, do you realize that when Jesus was teaching that, he was speaking to who? The Pharisees. And, uh, and, and the religious leaders, the religious conservatives. And when he described the character of God as having this big welcoming heart, they would have been saying, no, no. That is not how, the way it is. That person would not be welcome home. Nobody would go out to greet them like that. They have committed a, a, a grave offense against God and against all that is holy. No, 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 that's not it. You're a deceiver. They would have been so angry at this that they would want to kill him. And they did. And they did. And this is why. It's the beauty of Jesus, startled by the beauty of his loving heart. For 30 years, I've seen the pastor's class riveted by the beauty of the Father's welcome. I mean, it's maybe why it's addictive to me. Maybe it's why I can't give it up. I mean, I almost danced my way home Wednesday night, having watched again the, the eyes of people in the room, considered the wonder that they could be welcomed like that by a holy God, and how the kiss of the Father might change their trajectory. Ortland says in the book, Gentle and Lowly, this is a heart that walks us into the bright meadow of the felt love of God. That one line, I keep reading that one line, I love that. It is a heart that walks us into the bright meadow of the felt love of God. It's a heart that drew the despised and forsaken to his feet in self-abandoning hope. It's a heart of perfect balance and proportion, never overreacting, never excusing, never lashing out. It's a heart that throbs with desire for the destitute. It's a heart that floods the suffering with the deep solace of shared solidarity in that suffering. It's a gentle and lowly heart. Got it? That's the well. That's the well from which we come to drink and that holds us near. Do you know it? Let's apply it for a minute. What does our culture need now? Our culture needs Christians who make the tender heart of Jesus irresistible and unforgettable. You know, word way back in the 1960s came to the world of a, of a, of a sister uh, from Albania who was in Calcutta, India, and you know her story. Um, much like Jesus, you might say, of Mother Teresa, there was nothing in her form that made you attracted to her. 
but perhaps in our lifetime, she represents a life of what? What word might you choose? Beauty. Malcolm Muggeridge is a jaded um, British journalist, forged his um, career in the ruins of World War II, and uh, he went to check this out for himself. He was um, not a, a Christian, not a follower of Jesus, until he met her. He was converted. And, um, and he wrote a book. Uh, I recommend you to read it. I think it was 1968 he wrote the book. It's called Something Beautiful for God. That's what he encountered. Something beautiful for God. That's what our jaded world needs to see, right? Something beautiful for God. You know, someone in our church who works with teenage moms went before a judge recently because um, the father of, uh, of her baby was um, attempting to um, coerce um, custody of that child. And uh, someone in our church went and stood with that mother before the judge and, uh, and pled her case before the judge and for the mother's well-being, for the baby's well-being. Somebody got involved. Um, beautiful. More attractive. The mob um, praying and singing to Jesus, believing they were on, were on a religious crusade as they stormed the United States Capitol, or this congressman. This is congressman who early the next morning after the, this is like one o'clock in the morning um, after that raid on the Capitol, that unsolicited is on his knees cleaning up the mess, and he did so for hours. Which do you think is a better picture of the heart of Jesus? The enraged mob singing Christian songs, or the man on his knees serving, making himself low? That's what our culture needs. So what does the church need to be? a place where people encounter the beauty of Jesus. So Robin, Robin Shipes did a fantastic job leading us this morning. Robin uh, told the staff a couple weeks ago that Christmas she was helping out in, in uh, children's um, ministry in the nurseries, and she heard one of our nursery workers. Now, our nursery worker didn't know Robin was there. She was actually in another room and heard this. But this nursery worker was... Um, as she changed the babies, she was telling each baby um, how much Jesus loved them. And that Christmas was about Jesus. Jesus came into the world to, um, for them because he loved them. That message was being given to babies, little babies. When Robin told us that, Adam Jones said, that's, that's, that's the philosophy of our church. That's the heartbeat of our church in a nutshell. That's our whole mission in a nutshell. Make Jesus beautiful. We don't make him beautiful. We just proclaim his beauty, right? Um, one of our recent new members, well, I like to ask, how'd you ever find out about this church? How'd you know anything about it? Who brought you here? Who told you? Whatever. And they said, I was new to the community. I think they moved here from Oregon or somewhere. And, um, and they said, I, I was driving down the road and I saw a sign, said church, and I pulled in the property 
And I drove down the way and I saw the sanctuary and I saw the fountain. And she said, I pulled in and I began to weep for the beauty. There's a reason we build things the way we do. There's a reason we try to make our grounds um, beautiful because we think beauty is missional because our God is beautiful. And in the midst of a world that's broken, we want there to be a place, an oasis of beauty where people say, it's true, there is beauty. As I was working on this message, someone was getting a tour of our office building and I heard them out in the hallway, I don't even know who it was that um, said this, but they'd never been in there before and I heard them just say, they sort of gasped and they said, it's gorgeous. Right when I was working on this point, not kidding, I didn't make that up. Yes. Beauty. That's what a church needs to be, a place of beauty. Um, Cliff Moorhead. Cliff Moorhead greets outside here. If you come in through this entrance, he's relabeled it. It's not the west entrance. He puts a little sign up. It's the best entrance. It's the best entrance, Cliff very modestly proclaims, because he's there. Um, And Cliff often comes to both services to greet. And Cliff greets in such a way that... um, uh, it's a, it, because it's missional, the way that people are greeted. He understands it, that, 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 that we want people to encounter Jesus, and this is the way Jesus welcomes. Beautiful. Beautiful. So what do children need now? What do children need now? Ortland writes, our job is to show our kids that even our best love is the shadow of a greater love, to put a sharper edge on it, to make the tender heart of Christ irresistible and unforgettable. Our goal is that our kids would leave the house at 18 and be unable to live the rest of their lives believing that their sins and sufferings repel Christ. My favorite line in the whole book. Our kids would leave the house at 18 and be unable to live the rest of their lives believing that their sins and sufferings repel Christ. So a man in church comes to me and says, what do I do? My son's come out as gay. It happened a while ago. As a matter of fact, he said it was a year and a half ago. And, uh, and he said, I've, I've, I've never talked to him since. I've cut off all communication. I am disgusted. Um, uh, and, uh, and, and yet I'm heartbroken. Um, you know, how can I change my son? And uh, tender as I could be and careful as I could be, I said, um, you know, the bigger challenge is going to be changing you. I said, um, here's what I would do. Get in your car as soon as the service is over and drive to where your son is. Take him out to lunch, take him out to dinner and confess your attitude and confess your... Um, um, your um, self-righteousness and uh, tell your son that from from here on nothing will ever separate you from him and uh, tell him um, uh, you know does he know that the lifestyle he's chosen doesn't meet with your approval of course right you don't have to tell him that Um, the lifestyle that he's chosen will actually lead to his ruin yes that's true it's a ruinous choice on uh, his part and that should always break your heart but you get over there and you love him and you make it known that every, you know, you start calling him every day, every week, whatever he'll allow if he's willing to forgive you and you pour your heart, you serve him. He's your boy. He's always your boy. He's your precious. He's your son. 
Nothing should ever separate you from your son. That's what our children need. What do you need? What do you need? C.S. Lewis said this. Yes, I know, Adam Jones has probably used this quote before and every other C.S. Lewis quote. Lewis said, we do not want merely to see beauty, though. God knows even that is bounty enough. We want something else which can hardly be put into words, to be united with the beauty we see, to pass into it, to receive it to ourselves, to bathe in it, to become a part of it. That's what we need. So allow yourself to be allured by the beauty of Jesus. Allow yourself to be attracted Build into your life some unhurried quiet where you give your soul room to be re-enchanted with Jesus and stay there until you know that Jesus loves you. And you don't just know it, you feel it. That's what you need. So let's talk about point two. It's the beauty of Jesus that draws us to him but it's also his friendship, his never failing friendship. Startling in John 15 when he says to his apostles, greater love hath no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. And no longer, Jesus said, do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I call you friends. Everything I've heard from the Father, I have made known to you. Jesus says, you are my friends. There's a public health um, crisis, and you might say, yeah, we're aware of that, Pastor. It's nothing else talked about for the last year. No, a lot of people think this is far worse than COVID. It's loneliness. It's an epidemic of loneliness, and COVID has only what? Exacerbated um, that. People are um, desperately lonely. Scott Sauls is a pastor in Nashville who has the opportunity to be a chaplain once a month at the Ryman Auditorium, which is one of the most famous music venues in the whole world. And so the great acts uh, come through the Ryman, and when it was Scott's turn, he happened to be uh, uh, the time where one of the most famous uh, female singers in the world was performing there. He had a chance to talk to her backstage. How do, how do you like being a... Um, uh, a a celeb, a a big time, a performer. And this is what she said. In about five minutes, I'm gonna walk out on that stage. Thousands of people's attention will be fixed on me. They'll sing along with all my songs. Tomorrow night, I'll do it again, and then again, and then again. And you might think, what a life. Wow, that girl's living the dream. But the truth is, being the person on stage makes me feel like the loneliest person in the room. Saul says, no number of fans or sold out shows will ever be able to substitute for the need to have friends. It is far better to be known and loved than it is to be followed, tweeted, and applauded. You can have 1,200 Facebook friends and have no what? Friends. There's nothing as sweet as a friend Perhaps there's nothing as painful not to have any. God said at the beginning of time, it's not good for man to be alone. So do you have a friend? Many people have acquaintances. Many people you know, know a lot of people. They have a, a broad social circle. 
but it's pretty painful. In some ways, it's almost impossible to face the fact that you might not have anyone who's really your friend. That person you could go to at any time with any problem, that person you could reveal the worst garbage about yourself to, and they won't walk away. Friendship with Jesus. He called the apostles his friends. Now, who is Jesus friends with beyond the apostles? It's interesting that it's his detractors that identify it, right? The, the detractors of Jesus also seem to all, often seem to be more aware of who he is than uh, those who are around him often. Think about the demons who would cry out, we know that you are what? We know that you are the son of God. So many other people didn't. They saw it, they knew it. And so it's his detractors that we see in Matthew chapter 11. The son of man, this this is a pejorative. This is a slur on Jesus. The son of man came eating and drinking, they said. Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. They are slamming Jesus. He's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. You know, to them it was a, um, a word of disdain. But who's it not a word of disdain? That Jesus is a friend of sinners. Who would find that to be the most heartwarming? Sinners, right? A week ago we did the memorial service for Jennifer Lamanda. When someone dies in our church, we like to go back and read what they wrote when they joined the church because we ask him to fill out a piece of paper and answer a question, right? If you were to die and stand before God and he were to say, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? And Jennifer said, I am a broken sinner. That's all she said. I am a broken sinner. Oh, for broken sinners, this is the sweetest. Jesus is a friend. What does that mean that Jesus is a friend? Well, some of what it means is that he enjoys spending time with us. We are welcomed We are always welcomed by him. He likes us. He pulls us into his heart. It means his commitment to us doesn't waver. It's not based on our passion for him. Proverbs 18, 24 says, a man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. To have a friend like that is priceless. This friendship is stable, it's immutable. He never moves away from us, got it? He likes to spend time with us. He'll never move away from us, he's safe. We can divulge anything. People have secrets they've never told their best friend because they're not sure that best friend would be their friend if they knew what they were about to tell. But with Jesus, it's silly not to divulge because what? There's nothing you'd ever confess or tell or let Jesus in on that'll go, oh, I I would have never guessed with you, right? What a surprise, what a shock. Usually I think Jesus would say, you're still not being honest. Tell me the rest. Tell me the rest. There's more there, wasn't there, right? He's safe. There's nothing we can share that will cause him to raise his eyebrows or distance himself. There is no ceiling on what he'll put up with and still want to be our friend. In Revelation chapter 3, 
most interesting thing happens. Christ, uh, Jesus has been talking to, uh, about Christians, and uh, he calls them poor, wretched, pitiful, blind, and naked. Poor, wretched, pitiful, blind, and naked. And then he says this, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The very same people. He said, I'm at the door, open the door, and I will come in and we'll connect. We'll share food at the table together. We'll be family. We'll be friends. It's stunning, really, isn't it? Stunned by the sheer relational desire of Jesus. This is what we're supposed to be like. You realize that? This is what man was made to be. He is. Jesus, God in the flesh, wants to eat with you. He wants time with you. You know the most amazing thing? He doesn't befriend you because he's charitable. Because you're pitiful. He doesn't befriend you because he has pity, right? Because you're helpless and you need him. He befriends you because he wants to. Because he wants friendship with you. He befriends you for his sake, not just for yours. That's almost unbelievable, isn't it? I'll give you a very small illustration. So about 30 years ago, I'm a young punk pastor, and I get invited in this group. There's about 12, 13 pastors in this um, group, and they're older, a little older than I am. They're wiser. They're, they're like converted. They're, you know, there's a lot of um, good in them. Uh, and I was definitely like, what in the world have I been invited into this august circle? One of them you may have heard of. A number of them you've probably heard of. One of them was a fellow named Tim Keller. And uh, Tim Keller, if you don't know, is a pastor in New York City for all those years since and uh, is like the 13th apostle. And um, written a lot of books and uh, probably uh, one of the most respected Christians in all of the world in our um, day. And so I'm sitting in a circle for the last 30 years when we meet with Tim Keller. And um, he's read more books, he knows more, um, he prays more, he's smarter than, he's whatever. I'm just smart enough to mostly keep my mouth shut. And, um, and, and as the years went on, every time, it was like whenever, whatever Tim would say, I'd write it down, sometimes furtively, because I don't want to look that, you know. And then I'd come and tell you guys and I'd never give him credit. And... Um, <laughs> Um, and uh, then there was a time where I realized that when we would gather at these meetings, he would seem to seek me out. And then he would seem to uh, sit next to me at dinner, and he would seem to be amused by me. <laughs> um, and it suddenly struck me, he likes me. I'm his friend. Do you know what I'm talking about? It was startling to me. Um, I wouldn't even ever dream of that. He's friends with George W. Bush. He's friends with Francis Collins, you know, the Human Genome Project. I mean, he's, he's friends with, with world leaders. 
He sits next to the prime minister of England at, you know, events over there. I'm his friend? You're a friend of Jesus? Do you realize how it ought to stun you? Jesus, you're not just a charity case. He's not just condescending. He likes you. Think about it. So what's the application if you've been befriended by Jesus? Then befriend, right? If you've experienced befriending, then befriend. Befriend sinners. Jack Miller was a, another pastor who, who um, his teaching radically impacted my life. I just read a biography on Jack Miller and it talked about him being in London in a pub and some guy there in the pub is just a drunk I mean, in, in uh, Dublin. And uh, the guys, and, and Jack Miller uh, is, uh, is soothingly talking to him about Jesus. The guy eventually leaves the pub angry and he goes across the street, he's just laying in a park on the grass, on the ground. And the person, people recounting this said, before they knew it, Jack Miller was across the street, laying on the ground, next to the drunk, telling him about Jesus. Just laying on the ground, talking to a drunk about Jesus. Befriend, befriend sinners, befriend the unlovely. When I got out of, um, High school, I went to work in Webster County, West Virginia for a couple summers, and I was um, at the Upper Glade Presbyterian Church, Appalachia, pure Appalachia. And uh, I lived with the pastor and his family there. And the pastor's wife, one of the most remarkable people I've ever known um, in my life. Every night she, when she made dinner, she would package some up, and very often I was the, the, the courier to bring the dinner to Alice Clevenger. Alice Clevenger lived right across the street from the church, and Alice Clevenger, you need to know, had come into the choir practice at the Upper Glade Presbyterian Church where Beth, the pastor's wife, was the choir director and interrupted choir practice and told everyone there that Beth was a witch. And she brought her shotgun with her and said she was gonna kill Beth. That's the woman that she made dinner for every night. Crazy Alice Clevenger. If you've been befriended, befriend. Some of you are aware of the posture of being very angry, angry about our country, angry about the being on the road to ruin, angry about politics, angry about abortion and taxes and transgender and socialism and the media. I have a suggestion. Stop being angry. Go make a friend. The Bible says it a little differently. Mostly it says just go love your neighbor because your neighbor needs friends. You may have a big friend circle. You may have lots of friends. I, don't, I, can't, I couldn't even handle another friend. But a lot of people have no one. Go find one. Make them your friend. There's nothing like a friend. I've got a friend that writes me every week. He came to church here for a year before he moved away about 23 years ago. Writes me every week to encourage me because he listens to the sermons every week. He writes me every week to tell me that, uh, Cortez, you rock. 
He's my friend. I've got a friend that sends me a devotional every morning. It's on my phone before I wake up. He writes it himself. There's nothing like friends. When my daughter got so sick uh, this summer and we feared for her life, one of my dearest friends texted me this. I'm here. I'm crying. I'm sorry. I'm praying. I love you. I have hope. Jesus can do anything. He believed when I didn't believe. He believed for me. I took that, I, I, I blew it up, and I taped it right in front of my desk at home so I look at it all the time so that my friend could have faith for me when my faith was flagging. There's nothing like a friend. Ministry is lonely. We've got the greatest church. We've got the most supportive congregation. I get to work with a dream staff, but there's still lonely moments. And the only thing that sustains me is that Jesus is my friend. Do you know his friendship? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice, he says, open the door. If you've never opened the door, open the door. Jesus will come in and you'll have a friend. Ultimately, the only friend you'll ever need. What draws me to Jesus? He's my friend. Amen. Jesus, some people go to church all their life, and we know they study the Bible, and, and they, they learn it, and lots about you, but they never experience the deeply personal, relational passion that you have for your people. And Lord, some people in this room don't know the Bible at all, and they're trying to find um, something to fill the void in their life, something to compensate for their loneliness apart from you. Lord Jesus. If we don't open the door, will you kick it in and come in and be our friend? Your heart, your beauty, your friendship, we worship you. Nothing, no one is more beautiful than you are. We thank you in Jesus' name. for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Seven Rivers, please visit our website at sevenrivers.org.